This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.
Thanks, Joe, um, for thinking about asking me to share my story a little bit today, a little bit of it. Um, you're going to hear my wife singing a little bit, and as you'll see when she sings, that I believe in marrying up, okay? So just remember that. But uh, I, uh, for whatever this may be worth, my story is one of uh, transformation through the Christian faith. Um, I lived a very different life, and today I do live as a Christian. I try to live a faithful Christian life, not perfectly by any means, but I live with a hope. Today I do have an abiding joy uh, that I didn't used to have before. Um, not every day is perfect. I'm not always happy, but I do have a joy that I didn't have before. Uh, because of some foundational beliefs that, uh, that I have in a loving God, in Jesus Christ, who upon his blood that we celebrated, I believe I'm saved from my sins, from damnation and hell. And it's from the wellspring of that Christian faith that I believe in, from the holy word of God that I believe is true, from the enduring history of the, of the church that I've come to love, from the saints that have gone before me, and from the brothers and sisters who walk with me. From those things uh, and the power of the Spirit, I believe that that gives my life meaning today. And that's something that I never had before, before I was a believer. Um, and I think that my belief in God and the Bible to guide me as a map, to give me a worldview, instructs me on making decisions, or I try to, to, to make my priorities that way. I didn't do that before. It nurtures my mind in a way that I didn't have before. It's an objective map for me to navigate a very complex world and a lot of hard decisions that uh, otherwise I wouldn't know how to make. But there was a time when I lived a very, very different life. Um, quite, quite different. In fact, hardly even recognizable uh, to who I am today and what I believe today and how I try to live today. Um, yes, I was still a doctor at that time. Um, my motivations were different in some ways, but I still tried to take good care of patients and still loved medicine and science. I loved it then. I love it now. That's not different. Uh, I, was, I was an inquisitive and curious person then. I am now. I liked cars and fast cars then. I still like fast cars now. That's no different. I liked baseball then, and I love it now. But I saw the world very different. Um, and the choices that I made and the priorities in my life, and in other words, my worldview, the way that I saw the world was completely different than the way I try to live now. 
And so it's, it's really 180 degrees different. So as we celebrate baptism, I think that was the reason why Joe thought my story is one that shows the power of transformation of Jesus Christ. That I don't think we can find any other way, and I'll explain why I think that. Now, I did not wake up one day and decide to be a believer. You know, I, I lived this very different life. And it, now, there was a day when I felt I became justified before the Lord. And that was an event. That was a day. But what led up to that through several years was a, a process. A, a chipping away, if you will, at my uh, icy uh, atheism. And what I call atheistic materialism. That's what I believed. Uh, and there were really four major game changers that kind of impacted me. And I want to share ultimately those four things today through some stories that I hope will resonate with you in some way, either now or maybe in the future. Uh, if you ever have any doubts yourself or struggle with that, maybe. Or if you have unbelievers in your life that you would like to bring to Christ, maybe it'll help you make sense of the way they see the world. Whatever it is, however God may use it, um, I'm hopeful. But I hope uh, to have your attention for just a little bit. If you rewind the clock to 2000, uh, so about Y2K, you remember, for some of the, those of you who remember that time frame, 20 years ago, I would have described myself as an agnostic. Now, that is uh, one that has no knowledge of God. Basically, I, I had no knowledge of God. I didn't have proof. I had no scientific proof. I had no formula that I could prove God existed, so therefore, I didn't believe that there was a God. I didn't understand who Jesus was. I had no interest really in that because I didn't think it was pertinent to me. Because like I said, at that time, uh, you know, I was an academic. I believed in science. But I only believed in science. And I believed that we basically live in a world of molecules. Molecules in motion, a mechanistic universe with laws that govern everything. And there are laws that govern everything. There are natural laws. There are mechanisms. We understand those things. But at that time in my life, and, and really since uh, I was young, until I had this uh, conversion, I really believed that's really the only thing there was, was molecules, was matter and energy. And you, Einstein described energy can be converted into matter. There's energy, there's matter, and there's time. And that's really all there is, is what I thought. And it were these game changers that happened to me that shattered that worldview. And that's really why I want to share with you today. My, uh, my belief back then was that since I believe there's only matter and energy, and you're basically given so many years to live, 90, 100 years if you're lucky, then you just need to go for the gusto. You need to enjoy life as much as you can. And I still think you need to enjoy life. But that's not all there is. That's not the whole story. And I, I found that to be the case when I really investigated it. Um, if you go back to 19, 1989, I was a Generation Xer. I am a Generation Xer. Um, and uh, in that time frame, you know, my parents were, were great parents. They took me to church. Um, wonderful parents. I couldn't ask for better. But, uh, no, it's nobody's fault. I don't know why it happened, but for whatever reason, when I got to be about 18 to 21 years old, what I got was you need to get a good education, you need to uh, study hard and, and become successful, 
You need to marry well. And that will bring you happiness and prosperity, basically. And those things will come if you work hard and accomplish those things. And so I did that. And I worked hard and I got the education. And I feel I've married well. And uh, that all was good. But I checked the boxes, you know. And I love my work. And by the world standards, I should have been completely happy. But next slide, you'll see that what I really ended up having, having was a, an emptiness. And we'll get to that more in a minute that I'm going to talk about. There's nothing wrong with the formula of check the boxes, be successful, marry well. That This is all good. It's true. The problem is that's not enough. And I didn't get that part. I, I got the part that will bring you prosperity, but I also thought that it would bring you happiness and peace and, a, and an internal joy. And I really believed that. That's what I got, and that's kind of the way I went after life at that time. Before I get to these things, I want to talk a minute about the matter of proof. Because I think, you know, we're questioning minds. And I'm not unique in that. We all... We all have the internet now, and uh, we all are smart thinking people, and we all have questions. And so this whole matter of proof, when I was an, an agnostic materialist, I believed there was no God because I didn't have proof, because I didn't have a formula. All right, so that, that means, if you understand where I was then, if all there is is matter and energy and nothing else, then there's no God, there's no supernatural, there's no afterlife, there's no soul, there's no objective moral values. There's no absolute right and wrong. Those things are subjective and up to the person. And remember, that's all, all that exists, you know, is matter and energy. So how do you get those things? And I believe that everything from stars to planets to rocks to butterflies and dogs and even human beings, that's just what they're made of and that's all there is to the story. And I believe that if you didn't have proof for something with something formulaic that could prove to me exactly that there is a God, it wasn't relevant to me. That's where I was. I've read and since then, of course, learned that Paul says that we, in this life, we see through a glass darkly. And I believe that's really true because... You know, we don't have all the story. We don't have all the facts. We never will in this life. And I come to find that, yes, I can give you a formula for 2 plus 2 equals 4. But at the end of the day, it's not going to change. It's not going to mean a hill of beans to you. It's not going to change your emotions. It's not going to make you feel different. But the things that really matter in life, and I would argue to think about that, the things that really matter, love, goodness, truth, relationships, Beauty, all the things that really, really matter to us, there is no proof or formula for. I've come to find that, and in fact, it's, it's that way by design. It's supposed to be that way, I understand now. But back then, I didn't see it that way. And, uh, you know, everyone struggles with this problem. From atheists to agnostics to Christians, we all struggle with the fact that we can't find proof. We don't have proof for these things. We don't have proof. But at least I found that the Christian worldview is honest about it. I, I believe they tell you the truth. If you read the Word, and, and you, it's, it, it, it de describes the way the world really is. I think Christianity best fits reality the way it really is. And, of course, science is important, but it's just not enough 
But the Bible, in God's view of the world, brings in the rest and explains all the important things that really matter. Four transforming things. The first is the emptiness, the void that I described. When I accomplished those things that I wanted to accomplish, um, I found, essentially, the short version of this one is, I was unable to find real joy and internal peace and happiness consistently with just things from the world, what I call worldly clamors. You know, whether that was uh, more cars or trips or education or more guitars or whatever, sex, drugs, rock and roll. I did all that stuff, tried all those things, and, and I'm not proud of it, but that's just the way it, way it was. And I tried to fill that void. And, and I began, I thought that if I checked the boxes, I would find peace. And I found that I couldn't do that. The point, the game changer was this, that I found that the void inside me, the emptiness that I couldn't fill with the world, with anything physical, I finally realized that the reason I couldn't fill that void was because I had to be filled with something that wasn't physical. Had to be filled with something that wasn't molecules. Because I tried that. And if you look today at comedians and actors and millionaires of all kind, that's why we hear of them you know, committing suicide and giving up and having so much trauma in their life because they don't find the, the answer. And that's where it ultimately leads because it's just a darkness that you can't fill. And you can try and try and try, but there's not enough gold in California to fill that void. So I found that that was a game changer to me because I realized if I can't fill this hole with all the physical stuff, there must be something non-physical that will fill it. And if I have a need for something that's not physical, there must be something transcendent or something above the physical or something supernatural that that does exist that can fill that void. And that was the first thing that began to chip away at my agnosticism because I couldn't find any other way to fill that that need and that void and I found that to be true and I found the one thing that has been able to fill it is God and is my is is Christ is my faith and that has brought me a peace that I couldn't find in anything else Immanuel Kant said this and this is his epitaph on his uh, tombstone he says two things Fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and reverence. The more often and more steadily one reflects on them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Those two things, the the vastness, the, the mystery of the universe, the greatness of creation, and the moral law within, which is the second game changer, those things are what are really important but we see through a glass darkly. We can't prove it absolutely. The second game changer uh, is the fact that I came to believe that moral absolutes exist. I I used to think that is not the case. I used to think that, you know, whatever is good for you is what's good. What's good for somebody else is good, and there really wasn't an absolute moral law. And there wasn't such a thing as... Uh, gratuitous kindness and goodness and there's always a motive behind it and that kind of a thing. I was was in just about 2001 and I was driving uh, on 75 South from Indiana to Hilton Head 
and I was with my previous wife and, and I had children. I was married and divorced before I ever became a Christian, before I ever met Crystal. So this is back during that time of my life. We were driving to, uh, to Hilton Head on 75 South, about 10 or 15 miles from any town. I think it was uh, before you get to Chattanooga. And uh, I was driving an SUV and going along about 80 miles an hour or so. And all of a sudden it was dark. It was just about 8 p.m. And I look out and I see a tire, a wheel, rolling down the highway in front of me. And I'm going about 80, it's going about 95, okay? So that's not a good feeling. It's a sinking feeling. So where is this wheel coming from? And about that time, I began to notice the car became a little unsteady and realized that's my wheel going down the road. So I was able to get the SUV off the road on the side of the road and stop. Now, remember, this is before iPhones, before we had real, we had kind of a little flip phone that worked sometimes, not all the time. And I didn't have AAA. And uh, so I get out of the car. My wife and kids are there. I'm standing there. And a uh, bright lights come up behind me on the highway there. And this big guy gets out of the, uh, his SUV. And, you know, he's about 6'4", and he's got kind of a beard and kind of a biker-looking ponytail big guy and so he's coming towards me and I think well this is how it's going to end you know (laughs) he's going to kill me and take my family I know that and I'm just waiting here for it I don't know what I'm going to do about it and he comes up and approaches me and he says "Um, do you need anything and I wanted to say yeah I need somebody to protect me from you because you're going to kill me but I'd say well you know I told him about the wheel and the tire and it broke down and we'll see what happens well he tells me listen let me uh, put your stuff in my, my uh, Escalade. And, I, and I'm like, now wait a minute, I'm not going to give this to you. If you're going to kill me, you're going to have to work for it, you know. <laughs> but he says that, and I say, no, I don't think so. He says, no, no, I'll give you the car. You just, you know, go. He didn't know who I was. I mean, from Adam. He says, take my car, go up to the next uh, exit, and it's about 10 miles up. There's a hotel on the right, and stay there. And I'll stay here with your vehicle, and I'll get it towed, fixed, and bring it back to the hotel tomorrow. And so I know there's no way, there has to be some catch to this, but what am I going to do, you know? He's going to give me his Escalade after all, so <laughs> there's that. So I take, I take his car, I put my family there, and as I put my stuff in the back, uh, I notice a Bible and some other stuff, but he never told me anything about who he was or what he believed or anything like that. And apparently, I don't know exactly what happened on his side of things, but when I got to the hotel, there was, a, there was a hotel room there waiting for me, paid for. And so then I thought, he's going to come and break in the room and then kill me, you know. <laughs> but that never happened. And the next day, we woke up fine, and I went out, and my car was fixed, and I left the keys with the hotel for his car. I didn't see him. And I went on my way to Hilton Head. That really stuck with me. He never called me. He never tried to sell me anything. He never tried to give me a pitch about church. You know, nothing. And I just couldn't get over the fact that somebody would do gratuitous, or what we now call grace, what I know to be grace, gratuitous goodness, kindness, for no reason, for no benefit to himself. That was a game changer for me. Because I, I, I never could get past that, and I continued to think about it, and it, it changed the way that I started to see the world. It began to chip away again 
So I've got the void, can't fill with the world, so there must be something beyond the world, must be something non-material. I don't know what yet, but I'm looking for it. Then this guy does this, and uh, I see something called grace or gratuitous kindness or virtue that I never experienced before. You know, you might say, well, I know people that do good things or, you know, Oprah gave this money, whatever. But if you really look at it, there's usually something in it. You know, there's usually a pat on the back. There's usually a gift. There's usually an award. There's usually something. This was true grace. Love and mercy given to us when we don't deserve it. And that's the way that that was. I also began to... uh, see that there is an oughtness in the world or a rightness or a right way to do things. Um, I noticed that if, if you do things the right way, that we kind of all know what it is, and uh, you can define it better with, with the Scripture, but we all kind of have that moral law within. We know what's right, and when you deviate from that, things don't go well. When you do right, you seem to be flourish from that, you seem to be blessed by that, things seem to go better, and I thought, where does that come from? That isn't material, it doesn't fit with uh, the survival of the fittest, I can't put it into my materialistic worldview, I don't have a place to put it, I don't have a place to put gratuitous good and kindness, and I don't have a place to put oughtness. There is a golfer, uh, Bobby Jones, that illustrates this. He was playing in a major tournament. I don't know if you remember him, in the, I believe in the 70s. But uh, he was playing in a major uh, PGA tournament. And back then, of course, they didn't have all the cameras and the phones and everything like they do now. But his shot, his tee shot went in the rough to the point where it was between a rock and a, a stick, basically. So, you know, there's really no way to hit it. Uh, well... And in my in my golf game, you know, I'm just playing by myself. I would just sort of go like that, and then, you know, that looks better. The shot's going to be better, you know. So I wouldn't do that in a best ball tournament, but if it's just me, which, you know, and me or Jude, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it over. But, but what Bobby Jones did, he has the rock and the stick, and it's him and the caddy, and it's in the woods, and there's nobody there. And uh, his caddy's not going to say anything, but he goes ahead and hits from that horrible lie costs him two more strokes, and he loses the tournament by two strokes. So when they found that out, they asked him later, Bobby Jones, why did you not, uh, why not move the ball? You know, just, just a little bit. Nobody would know. But he said, but I would know. And he said, it's not worth the golf game. It's not worth a game for me to move it. That speaks to me because, again, what it means to me is there's that oughtness or that right way that in some way instructs us, in some way is real, it's tangible. I can't really prove it, but I know it exists. There's a good, there's a gratuitous kindness, and there's a rightness that is there, but I can't really explain it. The third one was the existence of the soul. Now, I can't totally explain this, but I'm going to tell you an experience I had that, uh, that made me really begin to question this and was a game changer for me. Many years ago, uh, I was working in an emergency room in another, another state, another place. But anyway, I had a patient that came in that was uh, in cardiac arrest, and you could tell that he'd lived a, a difficult, haggard life. He'd Lived a rough life, you could tell. 
And we tried to, we did, you know, ACLS, CPR, everything we could do to try to resuscitate this patient. And uh, after about 35, 40 minutes, you know, no, no, no brain, well, we, we assume no brain wave, but no heartbeat, no EKG, no blood pressure, no signs of life. In other words, clinically dead. Uh, not dead dead necessarily, but clinically dead, okay? So as far as we could tell, he was, he was gone. So I went out to tell the uh, family that we weren't able to resuscitate the patient. And yet there were three daughters there. And uh, they were standing there and I started to tell her that uh, her father, you know, that we couldn't save him. And she said, uh, she started shaking her head, no, it's not, he won't die. He's too mean to die, as she said. But she said, he won't die. He, he's, he's been a very difficult, uh, lived hard, terrible person. But I was there when it happened, and he saw something, and his eyes got real big, and he said, I'm not going there now. I'm not going. And then he passed out, and she said, I know my father, and he won't go. I said, well, I understand that, but we did the CPR, did the ACLS, did the epinephrine. He, he, in this, you know, in this instance, he didn't survive. And she said, I don't believe it. Well, I say, what well, we did, and then a tap on the shoulder, and the nurse says, he's back. <laughs> so I go back in, and he is. He comes back, and anyway, that happened three more times back and forth, but at the end, he survived. And he dug his uh, fingernails into the, the uh, cot, and later in the hospital... He explained going to a very dark place, a very horrible, hellish place. Uh, words can't describe, you know, just horrible, horrible, horrible place that he described being that he said was more real than this, but it was so horrible. That was a game changer to me. Uh, I can't explain that. I don't have all the answers. I've since studied it a lot. I've read a lot of books about it. I've talked to a lot of people. Um, talk to a lot of neuroscientists. There are some, you know, science can try to come up with answers, but there's really not an answer for consciousness surviving death. The second case like that was a younger man, 30 minutes, ACLS, CPR. He survived, and this time he told me things that I did while I was doing the, the code and uh, described me going back and talking on the phone to the cardiologist and coming back and who intubate, all this stuff, he, he described it all, said I was right there watching the whole thing. When that happens to you, you begin to realize, well, I don't know how that happens, but somehow his consciousness survived death. And so at the time, I'm material, I'm just, there's nothing but molecules, so there's no place to put that in my worldview. That's a game changer. So I begin to think maybe there is a soul, maybe people do survive death, maybe there's an afterlife, maybe there's a hell. And uh, that scared me, you know? And so I started thinking a lot about that and what life's really about. What this said to me was, again, we see through a glass darkly. We just don't understand, we don't have the proof. Starry skies above, moral law within... Truth can't always be explained by molecules alone. The last one are questions that I kept running into that I couldn't find an answer for just with science. Because you have to understand, I went to medical school and I really, you know, thankful to my professors for all they taught me. 
But the worldview that I got out of that just, for me, didn't work. I mean, it was about all science or scientism, which basically says science has all the answers for everything. That we can always find an answer. Science will always make life better. And yes, science does make life better, and I love science, and instrumental science is so beneficial to us in so many ways. But my point is, I kept running up against questions that science couldn't answer. For example, science can tell us how to do a kidney transplant and how to get the donor and match and do the procedure and then manage the patient afterwards so there's no rejection and and so it works well and we follow it. But it can never tell us which person to give a kidney to. If we have 100 people that need a kidney and one kidney, there's no way we can get that answer. Now, you can have an, an ethics committee of learned people who come together and make a decision, but it could be a different decision the next time. You can't always base it on age. You can't always base it on gender. You can't always base it on whether you have children or don't have children. There's always going to be someone with a different opinion. There's no answer, really. And when we begin to do that and decide things other than how to do things, when we start talking about why, or should we, or shouldn't we, or who... We're not really doing science. We're doing something else. And I began to see that whether it's that or euthanasia or experimental drugs or stem cell use to cure diseases in children, science can tell us how to do these things, but they can't tell us if we should, why we should, and who we should do it on. So I just found complex questions. My point is, the game changer, was that I found complex questions that I kept coming up against that I couldn't find an answer within science. Again, materialism, molecules, maybe not all there is. There may be something more transcendent. There may be something greater. Again, we have this problem that requires an answer outside of materialism. And then I look at the things that are so important to me, like love and relationships and grace and goodness, beauty, the soul, rightness, Uh, there's really no answer to these profound moral questions that's a simple formula. They're really without the outside of the purview of materialism, so I was left feeling there must be something beyond. And I think this is where we always wind up if we push it. If we push it farther and farther, we realize that only a universe created, and this is what I found as I began to study and look into it, I moved away from agnosticism and atheism and only scientism to realize that only a universe created by a loving God is logical if the cavity that we have inside that we all have, that's an emptiness, can only be filled by a spiritual answer. That only makes sense if there's a loving God. Only this universe makes sense created by a loving God if... There is such a thing as gratuitous kindness, really, by people who love God, follow Christ, and do things that are unselfish and good. I don't have anywhere to put that in materialism. There is a rightness, and that makes sense if we have a moral law that directs us rightly every time. That makes sense with God. It doesn't make sense with materialism. And lastly, that there's a soul and uh, that consciousness survives the body, survives death, and there are answers that science can't really 
get and never will get. I think that leaves me with the the only answer that there must be something transcendent. So, over the years, I searched and eventually found that I believed the Christian God is the right God, is the true God, and I gave my life to Christ. And since then, God has blessed me. Um, life hasn't been perfect, but I do believe that um, it's been the best life that I've had. It's been far better than the life without God. No question, no comparison. And so I think the transformative power of Christ is, is there today for us, is powerful, and we can hopefully see in these baptisms um, young ones or those who've made a decision for Christ that will be lifelong, lasting, and transformative. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that uh, you are a loving God. And yes, we see through a glass darkly. But again, what really matters in life, there's no formula. There's no proof that I can absolutely hope, put my arms around. But yet I know that it's real. I know that you're real. And I know that you give us the ability to do things like gratuitous kindness and love. You give us beauty. You give us good relationships. You show us the right way to live. You give us a map to live by. And your word guides us when we have questions. And yet without all the answers, I, I, I cling tightly to a God that I know exists and loves me and, and a Christ that has saved me. And I thank you for that. And I ask your blessing on those who are being baptized today that uh, these baptisms would be life-changing and would transform families and lives. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.